Welcome to Surrey Economic Insights, where we sit down with some of the top city building and industry experts to unpack the latest business insights and opportunities affecting fast-growing cities like the city of Surrey in British Columbia, Canada. My name is Stephen Wu. I'm the manager of economic development with the city of Surrey. And today we have two guests who are experts in their respective fields when it comes to emergency response in the face of crisis. I'd like to first welcome Shelley Morris, the assistant fire chief for the city of Surrey. She oversaw the city's emergency management program over the past few years, which included a pandemic and a number of flood emergencies as well. I'd also like to welcome Andrew Wynne-Williams, the Divisional Vice President in British Columbia for the Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters Association. William has a strong pulse on the province's manufacturing industry at the ground level and their role during the pandemic. Well, guys, it's great to have you both join us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we have a a fun topic today, kind of talking a little bit about some emergencies that we've just faced over the past two years. The biggest one, obviously, was COVID-19. And then through that, you know, things actually got a little bit worse with a wildfire situation in British Columbia, and then that awful flooding situation out in the Fraser Valley. And I think what we learned is we all thought the big one, the big earthquake was the only big crisis that we were ever going to face. And it seems like with climate change and, you know, pandemics and viruses and, you know, all these things, it's a much different world today. So it seems like we learned a lot. And maybe I could start off with Shelly. Like, what were the key experiences that we learned from the pandemic? And uh, what was your biggest takeaway having kind of lived through all of these different events in such a short period of time? Well, it's interesting. Uh, We had been planning for the earthquake, like you mentioned, for years. And we did know that we had a lot of different risks in our areas. And some of them were common to the whole geographical area. But when the pandemic came and actually put us to the test, we talk about collaborating all the time and about sharing uh, our skills and resources, but we had a difficult time doing that. We all had uh, our different goals and objectives and ways of achieving them. And so universally, we weren't able to come together in the way that we should have when this was affecting all of us at the same time. So we did notice that our supply chains and our transportation routes, especially during the floods, created a big problem. We often thought that there would be panic buying, and we tell people to be personally prepared for up to a week, but it became a self-fulfilled prophecy when supply chains slowed down. We had difficulty getting them, and then everybody on top of that started panic buying. So it exacerbated a situation where it was only confined to the risk we had and then people's behaviors on top of that. Yeah, I, I know personally, you know, in the early days of the pandemic, because having family in Hong Kong who lived through SARS, they knew that they needed masks back in the day. And so even before the mask mandates were out here in British Columbia, I know my family was all over the internet. My family was sending me masks from Hong Kong and we were looking for masks. And, you know, I'm guilty of it hoarding as well. But when you kind of look at it, you know, that's me personally, but I think we had a broader... When everyone else was buying toilet paper, you were buying masks? I was buying masks. I literally had supplies (laughs) of N95s at my home. Yeah. Wow. But I mean, that that kind of shows to say that, you know, that panic buying also created a lot of shortages as well. And we saw toilet paper being the funny one where we actually have a lot of that supply chain here, but people were panic buying. And from a business perspective, what were you guys seeing, Andrew, from the manufacturers? Were you seeing people kind of responding to a lot of demand or not getting able to get stuff to their businesses? So the issue that people ran into was not being quite sure what the opportunity was that they could help address. So what was the challenge they need that they could help address? So yeah, we can make masks, but what sort of masks? And what are the components that go into those masks? You know, the N95 masks, the high-end ones, we've quickly found out that the barrier was, was blown plastic. 
And so a lot of manufacturers thought, oh, we can make masks, but we can't get the blown plastic. And so there was a lot of sort of non-medical masks. A lot of companies pivoted into making that, but a few stuck with it and got the right equipment, the right materials, and have been very successful in producing masks. The issue now is, now that the crisis is over, government cannot go back to making all the purchases overseas or we won't have the domestic supply chain of masks, which we now view as very critical. Yeah, having a localized supply chain, I think, is is a critical element. I think it's something we've really learned through this. Yeah, and I think just coming back down to that earlier point that Shelley, you made, you know, it was kind of frantic and we thought that we'd be all collaborating and it was an all of society type yeah. approach. And I think, you know, to Andrew's point, one of the reasons why we had so many businesses trying to make masks was because the prime minister back in March, April 2020 said, we want manufacturers to retool and start helping us make some of this critical stuff. And what you just articulated was that a lot of people wanted to help, but they didn't know what they didn't know at the end of the day. And they didn't even know what the standards were. They didn't know what type of materials they needed to bring in. It was a big mess. So. What's changed? Do you feel that anything has changed since then? Like, do you feel that we are more prepared for knowing that we do need masks and stuff like that? Or do you still think that we are a little bit unsure of what other supplies that we need to be prepared for the other emergencies? Can we actually know, really? Well, I'm not sure what Shelley would think, but from the perspective of the manufacturer, we think that we've nailed a lot of it. Well, as far as a pandemic is concerned, we've nailed a lot of it. The key is going to be sustaining slash maintaining it. So we've been using masks as a proxy for, you know, all kinds of different products and PPE. But one of the ones that I think of is there's a company in Surrey that developed a really effective test kit system. It's a plastics company. And that test kit system is top of the line. Let's just say it's a really good product. It's not much more expensive than other products, but For them now, you can also use that for your seasonal flu testing. You can use it for all other kinds of testing. But unless, you know, the PHSA, who does a lot of the government purchasing for those kinds of products, actually ups and buys the Canadian product and makes a point of buying the Canadian product, they won't be able to maintain that that here, that supply chain here, right? So, you know, we use masks as a proxy, but it goes beyond masks. There's a whole bunch of things that we deem as critical for these kinds of situations. And if we want to be able to ramp up and produce them quickly, then we need to make sure that that supply chain is viable in the near term as well. And I guess a lot of that had to do with standards, right? And Because I guess here in Surrey, one of the projects that I was involved with was Surrey Makes PPE. And I think one of the biggest barrier for these companies that you were talking about was actually these national standards. And maybe Shelly can talk a little bit about why we have some of these standards. But we found that, you know, even if you made a gown with materials, it needed to be certified by some agency because it became a union issue. If you made masks, you needed to kind of have like all sorts of testing and certification and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And that became an issue. But Shelley, do you think that during emergencies, we need to kind of be a little bit more flexible in this? Because that was one of the biggest barriers. And I get that no. there's this public safety issue too, but... Yeah, that, that's the really difficult thing to get around here, Stephen, is the public safety issue. So if you reduce those barriers, what sort of product do we have in the end? And there's certain ones that, yeah, like if you want to build a plexiglass barrier, it just needs to be a barrier. And yeah, that, that made a lot of sense. And there doesn't have to be a lot of restrictions. But when you're talking about masks and you have first responders going in and and it's protecting each other from the virus, you have to maintain a high standard there. 
there's no way to really get around that. But I think there's definitely areas where you could reduce those limitations and allow the production to flow quicker. And then there's some areas you can't, but somebody's got to make that decision. I had an interesting conversation the other day with a manufacturer for masks who said that the standards for a Canadian-made N95 mask are higher than the standards a Japanese company or a Chinese company needs to meet to for a KN95 that they're importing. It's actually higher mm. than even the American FDA N95 standard actually here in Canada. It's the highest so, uh, standard in Canada. So, which which... I guess is fine if um, we're going to maintain that standard for masks we're importing. But if we're not going to maintain that same standard for masks we're importing, then why why do we have it? <laughs> yeah. Then you got to look at the standards and say, and when you're in uh, having a supply issue, you then you look at yeah, can I can I lower them? Yeah. You know, are my standards too high? We're in a situation here. We have to think about lowering them and maintaining that safety. If you can maintain the safety, then there's a huge benefit to lowering them at that time. And I guess there's a cost to maintaining those standards because, you know, when we kind of take a look at, like, let's face reality, like now with the mask mandates going away in Canada, obviously there isn't going to be that much of a market demand for masks. But at the same time, we don't know when the next pandemic is going to come and we will need to ramp that up. So do you have any thoughts on how we can kind of sustain some of those emergency capabilities so that we do have them when the next emergency comes? Because without that, a lot of these companies just won't have that demand to continue surviving. Right off the top of my head, I'm thinking inventory. I know a lot of us took a look at our inventory. And a long time ago, we all understood the need to hold inventory. And then nothing happened. We didn't have a pandemic. We didn't have a need for the inventory. So when they became out of date, we didn't maybe replace them as we should. I think what we've learned is we need to hold an inventory. It's critical to actually keep going in that beginning stages of, a, of any emergency until we can get the supply chain going again. Yeah. And then for us, from the manufacturing side, we would like to see governments in some way identify which elements of emergency supplies that we think are critical and that we think are critical to maintain domestic capabilities to produce. And once we've identified those, you can then amend your purchasing policies to support those local domestic producers. And so you're not actually stuck in a situation like we were at the start of the pandemic, where we had no domestic capability for producing those kinds of, of, of products, and we were having to import them from China, where everyone else was also trying to import them from China. And in the near term, maybe more expensive to produce some of that in Canada, but not outrageously so, and it's a sacrifice that's worth making. Absolutely. You gotta put that investment uh, where you need it. It's gonna pay out in the end. And I think a lot of people, the inventory uh, that I spoke of is difficult to maintain, um, and it's not maybe a viable solution for them, but having a, a domestic source to get it from is, is your next best way to go there. And one way to build that, that inventory is, just to, is to buy it domestically, right? Yeah. Make the show you get that domestic purchasing going over the longer period. And I was going to say, we'll be great. Obviously, if we have another pandemic, that won't be great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll be We're done with pandemics. We don't need another we one. We'll be prepared. <laughs> yeah. And I guess, you know, one of the funny stories, well, actually not funny, but I, I guess it's almost uh, two years since the city of Surrey's emergency operations center has been activated. And I remember getting the call from EOC saying, hey, Stephen, we need you as part of advanced planning. And I remember calling you, Shelly, and saying, I've never done emergency before. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I see everyone holding this big, thick 
binder of emergencies and the Surrey Emergency Program. And, and can you get me a copy? And you sent me a copy very kindly, like within a day. And so I was flipping through it and it was pretty comprehensive. Like there was pandemics, there was wars, there was fire, every single type of emergency you, you can imagine. Now, you talked about yeah. inventories. Is it realistic that we can keep an inventory of supplies that we need? And do we actually know what type of supplies that we actually need for all of those different emergencies? We take an all-hazards approach to emergency management. We understand a lot of things can happen, but if we can have a uniform approach to it, we're way better off. So having said that, we can carry supplies that we know we need to carry out our essential services, which can save lives, right, and mitigate the impacts. But as far as you cannot predict everything that we're going to need in the moment, but we can have a good understanding of it, like the masks and all that and, you know, medical supplies. There's certain things that you can definitely say we, we're going to need this in any emergency. And your first the first thing you want to do is save lives. So you look at your your most critical function and say, how are we going to carry that out? What sort of supplies is that going to take? But, yeah, being able to pinpoint it all is, is probably important. It's going to be impossible to do, but having a, um, that diversification in your own local economy that can actually resource it for you, that's, that's going to be your best bet. And again, I mentioned the collaboration, knowing your partners, the private industry, your partners within, with local government, all the organizations, the non-for-profit organizations, they all have massive capabilities and skills that when they come together, we can, we can do anything. We just have to form that network beforehand so we're ready to go. So I, I guess looking at all of those emergencies and kind of looking at the bottom line, as we talked about the big one, the big earthquake is the one that we know is going to come. Yeah. What do you wish we can do better here in British Columbia to prepare for that from an industry support perspective? Like if there are things that we need to be critically able to make, what are some of those capabilities? That's a big one because it's going to be all about moving the debris and moving supplies here and there, but it'll be getting food and water and getting it to people and the medical supplies. It's mostly where we have a loss of transportation routes, which is uh, so then anything we need. That's why we often talk about it's got to be locally sourced and locally means not traveling over bridges, probably having those distribution centers in a common place where everybody can go get it because it's going to be unlikely we can move around. But what we can make, that's going to be difficult to find out, you know, until we know. But definitely with the first aid supplies, the food, the basic medications, things people need to survive that they can't get access to. Those are the things that we're going to need right away. And the storage space for that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess like right now, if there was an emergency and we needed a lot of those supplies, I'm assuming that a lot of it would be airlifted from other places. So, you know, if the big one did hit, theoretically, we won't necessarily yeah. be cut off. We'd also have access to that. So I don't want our listeners to think that we are all on our own. No. And no, there's a lot of support. But I think no. it's about building local resiliency for a lot of stuff that, you know, yes. maybe we can be a little bit more self-sufficient on. Yes, you're right. We don't want to scare people, but it's like you always think about your worst case scenario. So you think about, okay, so say you can't, it's not safe to travel the bridges yet or whatnot. The province, the federal government, everybody will do anything they can to put the resources to help where needed. But if we can be as self-sufficient as we possibly can, then we're doing everybody a favor, right? They can move those resources to other places that are more in need. But I think the best we can do is to be good where we are. Fantastic. And I guess when you kind of take a look at the business community and, you know, what can they do to better prepare themselves for emergencies? Do you have any advice for them? Oh, we've got there's a lot of information on business continuity. It all, all comes down to business continuity. How can you stay on your feet? How can you function as a business despite disruptions? Like look at your we're all going digital now. So what's going to stop you from being able to produce what it is you're producing? Pay your employees 
it really stops the whole recovery process when you don't have your businesses up and going. I mean, everybody, we all rely on it. It's critical. Yeah, we see that right now. For example, I know of one company that recently had a, a couple months ago, had a ransomware attack. And they missed about an hour of shift, only about an hour, because they were able to, they had a paper backup system that they were able to switch to and then get their other emergency measures in place. So that's a great example of a business that's very successfully dealt with a crisis that was just them. But I'm sure that if something happened like the big one and all the networks went down, that same company would be able to keep operating because they have those backup paper systems in place, right? Yeah. If you have one point where you can take down your whole business, that's where you need to actually look at being resilient. And Andrew, how resilient do you feel that our manufacturers are right now? Because they are a very critical part of our economy and we want to make sure that they are prepared. Do you feel that they are? The quality varies from manufacturer to manufacturer, right? Some are better prepared than others. But if you wanted to look at something that was more global as an issue, it is the unavoidable issue of supply chain. Right. Uh, we have very international supply chains um, going out and we're part of very inter- or coming in and we are, and we have we're part of international supply chains going out. A lot of people look at it and, and sort of go their biggest concern is, oh, I can't, you know, our, our members can't get metal or can't get this. It's also the flip side, which is we're part of international supply chains. Anything, so anything that really disrupts stuff coming in is also disrupting stuff going out. And I guess right now, you know, we're going into a period of great global uncertainty, not just pandemics, not just flooding. There's geopolitical, there's war. Are our manufacturers prepared for that? Or do you think that they are resilient enough to pivot with a lot of these macroeconomic conditions that affect them? Well, so most of them have done pretty well in managing. Um, you know, they've, a lot of them have gone away from just-in-time delivery to have larger inventories of the supplies they need. A lot of them have started to diversify their own supply chains so they can get it from more locations. But there's still going to be impact because there's certain things that are just unavoidable, like 30% of the steel coming out of Russia and Ukraine globally. That's going to have an impact, right? That's that's going to be, that's the elephant in the room. And so, yeah, you can diversify your supply chains all you want. But when you take that amount of, of production out of the world system, it's a problem. And do you think that we can be optimistic that as some of these supply chains get diverted away from some of these troubled areas that they can secure some more local opportunities? Or do you see that this is going to risk us losing some of our industry because they just can't do business without those secure supply chains from abroad? There's some stuff you're never going to be able to supply just locally. I mean, that's just a fact of life. There are some things that we will that we, you know, if we make an effort, we can diversify and and have sort of more resilient local supply chains. But the reality is, is that it's a mix, right? Some things we're all going to be able to respond and some we aren't. I think the real key is for us is to make sure we understand what drives success for us in terms of manufacturing, how we can manufacture successfully and support those things. And that will automatically then support the supply chains for those manufacturers as well, right? So, if, you know, we have a lot of steel fabricators in British Columbia, and most of them are supplying other industries, right? They're part of other supply chains. And I guess coming, coming back down to you then, Shelley, do you feel optimistic that BC is prepared for emergencies, given the experience we now have? And how do you think we can do better? I think we're realizing that this is an ongoing thing, emergencies like the, the, these last two years. We're talking, you know, the atmospheric rain event, the heat dome, uh, the wildfires that are, you know, 
since 2017, we were only seeing it every five or six years, even longer. Now they're year after year. So we're living, we're now normalizing emergencies in a way where other countries already dealt with this. They were doing seismic upgrades to all their buildings and their schools. And we're started to do that here. But I think there's an urgency to all this now. We're now putting the funding in to the mitigation and the preparation um, that maybe we should have put more into before, but it's hard to motivate and get that money to go into a direction that we haven't seen a need to. We knew that there was a vulnerability to it, but now we're like, this is real. This is not, and it's not going away. And now we're at the point where like, okay, what's next? So I think we're having some really good conversations about what needs to be done. I think finally things are getting done. That's pretty exciting in this world that every time we go through something, it's build back better. That's what we talk about all the time in the emergency world, but now we're having the money to back it up where we're going to build back way better than we did uh, year after year because it isn't going away. Absolutely. And I think the opportunity isn't just emergencies. I know a lot of companies, they wanted to retool, they got in the market, but a lot of the opportunity and ways companies can help is actually in that mitigation and resiliency piece as well. And I think we've got some great companies here in BC who are doing a lot of great things in clean technology and just changing the world in a lot of ways, but there's always opportunities for us to do more. And so I think with that, you know, um, I wanted to thank you again, Shelly and Andrew, for chatting with us today and sharing some of your insights. This was certainly one of the more interesting podcasts that we've had thus far, and hopefully we will have you guys back for more of these in the near future to talk a little bit more about some of the more specific things that came out of this conversation. Thanks again, Shelly and Andrew, for chatting with us and sharing your insights. And thank you, our listeners, for tuning into Surrey Economic Insights. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review. Don't forget to share this with others as well. And follow us on LinkedIn if you'd like to catch the next episode as soon as it's released. See you next time. Thank you. Thank you.